take first watch. to an all-new, very special episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? Sto bene, come stai? <laughs> Today, we are here <laughs> to celebrate Italy and one of its finest filmmakers, Lucino Visconti, with an opulent little doubleheader, his two 1960s films, The Leopard and The Damned. But before we get into that, I actually just wanted to quickly shout out a movie that I went and saw in theaters yesterday at your recommendation, Cole. Mm-hmm. A bunch of different people were talking about this movie. Yeah. Barbarian. And the word around Barbarian is basically just like, don't say anything. <laughs> so I won't say anything. But I just wanted to shout it out real fast because it was an exciting movie. And uh, I know that you enjoyed it quite a lot as well. It is a great ride. If anyone tries to spoil it for you, you punch them right in the face. Right in the face. Don't look at the trailer. Don't look at the poster. Just go in blind. Yep. Buy your ticket today see it as soon as you can it's in my opinion it's the funniest movie of the year so far agreed it is the i don't is it the directorial debut of zach Kreger? he he made like a comedy back in 2009 except he hated it and so did everybody else Is what, and it was like a web series, like sketch comedy, yep. which I think the movie has a little bit of that DNA. In oh, it. yeah. It sort of reminded me a little bit of Jordan Peele in the way that it's uh, somebody that I knew from comedy writing a horror thriller script that was still very funny. I got to see that in Dolby, Oof. and I just like, it's probably the most fun, wild, out there movie I've seen in that <laughs> format, you know, because that's always sort of the most the biggest it's your top gun maverick it's your the batman right you don't really get crimes of the future in the dolby auditorium but i got barbarian in there that was fantastic (laughs) how uh busy was that auditorium not particularly it was probably like 20 30 total people in there which is pretty sparse in that big auditorium but it was also a it was like a little bit of an earlier evening show it was like it's kind of a weird Mm -hmm. time that i went to it at Okay. Yeah, because I went on $5 Tuesday at like 8 o'clock and the auditorium was packed. Real good like discount theater day. Just go in there when the audience is packed and juiced. <laughs> Very few movies I would say are unpredictable, but I think that this one was genuinely, I, there was never a point when I knew what was about to happen. I was like, wow, okay, well, okay. It's constantly throwing you off course. Love it. So we will say no more. Mm-hmm. Go watch Barbarian. It's great. And, uh, then we'll move on to the topic du jour, Lucino Visconti. So how did you originally come to watch Visconti movies? Like, what was your introduction to his work? This was years and years ago when I was kind of going through, like, the 1001 movies you need to see before you die list or, like, the sight and sound uh, top 250. And a couple of his films had made it on there. And I went, oh, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. And I believe the first one I saw actually was The Leopard or Il Gatto Paro. And it just knocked me off my feet. And then I watched The Damned immediately afterwards. And then that blew me away. And I just kept going through his filmography until he just became basically maybe my favorite director of all time. For me, this is a much more recent discovery. 
I began with Senso, which kind of falls in the middle of his filmography. It's kind of that inflection point where he moved from making dramas that were heavily influenced by the Italian neorealists, very grounded in class issues. And then he sort of pivots into these huge scale production operatic type of movies like The Leopard, like The Damned. And Senso is like right in the middle of that. And I didn't, one of the things that I really am looking forward to about having this conversation and sort of having it on record is I think when you start with Visconti, particularly if you start in the middle of the the 60s where he's made all these historical films, there are a lot to dig into from the perspective of how much is going on in the background and in the plot related to the machinations of history. For example, Leopard is set entirely during the Italian unification. And Mm -hmm. so it immediately thrusts you into the history of the film. Before I saw it, you, I think mostly jokingly, referred to it as like the Italian Gone with the Wind. Yeah. But in Gone with the Wind, the American Civil War is like very much a two-dimensional background of that film. You could know nothing about the American Civil War. In fact, it's probably better if you don't yeah. because of how little it tries to reconcile. Whereas with every Visconti film I've seen that has any sort of historical backdrop, it is entirely about that history and how it impacts all the different characters, structures, civilization. When I watched Senso, I had no idea about you know the Austrian occupation of Venice and all this different yeah. stuff that was going on. I was just like, damn, look <laughs> at these costumes. This movie's pretty. Oh, gorgeous. Dropped it. Gorgeous movie to look at. But yeah, you're going to be pulling up Wikipedia every five minutes. Part of the goal of our conversation is a little bit to talk about what that history is, where Visconti kind of comes from, and then how that relates to these movies. And then, you know, hopefully so doing talk about why we think they're so great well i want to start off with giving a little bit of background as to who visconti was because one of the most fascinating things about him is that he's a man of many contradictions uh he was born in 1906 to a noble milanese family Uh, he was the son of giuseppe visconti di madrone the duke of granzano visconti and count of lonate pozzolo and carla erba who was the heiress of erba pharmaceuticals so he was born into Italian nobility just as like the old ways of nobility in Europe were dying out. And that family had been a collateral branch of the Visconti's of Milan, who had once ruled the city for centuries before being overthrown. So he grew up as a child in both a palace and a castle. As he grew up in the 20s, his parents divorced, and he actually ended up becoming a communist, despite his um, upper class background. He joined the Italian Communist Party during World War II. He even joined the Italian resistance. He turns his villa in Rome into a commune for artists during that time. And at one moment in 1944, he was almost killed via firing squad. He would have been shot in the head if it hadn't been for actress Maria Denise, who intervened at the last second to save him from certain death. Also during World War II, he joined a salon for filmmakers run by... Vittorio Mussolini, who is the son of exactly who you're thinking about. And he had joined at the time of Roberto Rossellini. He met Federico Fellini in there as well. So his first film, which is considered by a lot of people to be actually the very first Italian neorealist film, is 1943's Ossessione, which is a 
unauthorized adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice. That actually came out a year before the Hollywood version did. Then it got caught up in a huge legal rights issue because they never got the rights to adapt the book. And so that all spiraled out of control. And so we kept on working in this neorealist style until 1954 with Senso, which is this tragic love story between a high noble woman and a military officer during the Austrian occupation of Venice, right as the Risorgimento or the unification of Italy is kicking off, which, you know, continues throughout all of Visconti's philography. But if you've seen Senso, then you start to get a sense of the political and economic and social backgrounds that sets the stage for Il Gatto Padro. I think through that neorealist phase, what's worth mentioning is that that movement's totally defined by trying to put into film the sort of struggle of the working class, particularly after the war in Italy. Throughout the 40s and 50s, it was just this predominant style. There's a screenwriter, Suzo Cecchi D'Amico, who is a frequent collaborator with Visconti, who wrote many of his films, including The Leopard. And nearly everything that she wrote, she's the screenwriter of The Bicycle Thieves, the mm-hmm. iconic, iconic Italian film. And, you know, all of her screenplays from Rocco and his brothers to La Notte Bianchi, they're about lower class individuals and their struggle. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting as we watch this pivot into these movies that become about aristocracy, because you immediately, at least from my, from my perspective, when I was watching it, was wondering, how is this movie, The Leopard, which focuses on aristocracy, which focuses on royalty and nobility, going to reflect on those ideas? Will it be critical of them? Will it give some lens into the working class? Because it is a significant pivot. You know, when you go from Rocco and his brothers, which is about this immigrant family of lower class Southern Italians who are living in a tenement, basically. Mm -hmm. And then you pivot and all of a sudden we're talking about the Prince of Sicily. (laughs) The Prince of Selena. And I do think there's something really interesting about the fact that Visconti spent so long interested in the lower class and specifically in the geographic dynamics, because North versus South in Italy is honestly pretty similar to what goes on here. The North is very industrial. Um, like all the great fashion houses are based in Northern Italy and they view all of Southern Italy as uneducated rednecks. And so it's interesting, I think, with the leopard, because you're talking about the unification of Italy and it's set in Sicily, which is obviously its own distinct world, literally separated by the Mediterranean Sea from the rest of the peninsula. Mm -hmm. And I think what's kind of interesting when you're talking about those geopolitics is how he explores regionally specific points of view, ways of living, and then contrast that with like, you know, this is a movie about the unification of Italy. It's about the force that would bring the country as we know it today all together from these kind of more regional places and their power structures, but also their cultures also there in the way that kind of even after the unification those little bits of culture still exist even in the 1960s Rocco and his brothers takes place in Milan you know a century after the leopard and here we still see those kind of cultural differences 
the spirit of the people doesn't always necessarily align with what the state is doing, which is an important thing to remember when you're talking about Italy, which throughout the 20th century was defined by fascism. And we'll get more into fascism later. Or shadowing. <laughs> but the important thing about Il Gattaparo is it's from the point of view of the Prince of Selina, Don Fabrizio Corbera, and you watch him react to everything slowly crumbling away like he knows that there is no place for the aristocracy in the new italy and he's trying to come to terms with that that character is played by american actor burt lancaster it's like the triple deluxe burt <laughs> lancaster in this film he's incredible while dubbed <laughs> into italian right <laughs> well it, it sort of depends there's actually two versions of this because you can watch an english dubbed version that was cut for america but it's really hacked to pieces i would not recommend that it's a fun curiosity that's available on the criterion dvd if you happen to get your hands on it but it's an amazing burt lancaster performance and what i found while watching it was just it's amazing how captivating he is because the sets and the costumes the production the war is so enormous and so immersive and then across from him the embodiment of his crumbling power is french actor alain delon we know from le samurai and all the melville films and le Clice. he's one of the most handsome motherfuckers of all time <laughs> like and he's wearing an eye patch for like half the movie he's so hot and yet all i can think about is like burt lancaster sadly looking at stuff. somehow he looks even hotter with the eye patch than without <laughs> oh my god there's there's a moment where he kisses claudia cardinale's palm and it's like whoa that's whoa <laughs> i need you to relax <laughs> one of the great things about visconti films is that they just sort of exude it's not always sexuality it's just beauty yeah it's sometimes it's sexual sometimes it's just aesthetic i mean watching visconti feels like a night at the opera and i believe he actually was the director of opera at one time yes actually he had just as full of a career as being a director for the stage as he was for film what did you think of the ball at the end of the film i was sort of like have you ever been watching a film and you kind of get into the middle of a sequence that's been going on for a really long time and you're just very immersed in it and all of a sudden you kind of mm -hmm. look around and you're like wow it's been 15 minutes <laughs> yep you just haven't really been paying attention. You realize like the scene hasn't changed. It's just like the scale of it is so dense and extravagant. The ball sequence, you're mostly following around the Burt Lancaster character. But by that point, you've really learned a lot of different political figures. And so you're kind of watching what is basically like this big party scene of all these different people. And you sort of get these little developments and relationships and power dynamics that are being expressed. And all the while, it looks incredibly hot. <laughs> Burt Lancaster's just like sweating. You know, the whole thing is mm -hmm. like he's, he's aging. And it's kind of a depiction yeah. of his inability to keep up with this kind of lifestyle that determines what power is in his world. Right. He's really contrasting with the young lovers who are kind of like, excitedly dancing around and he's just kind of like i'm suffocating yeah everybody else has a fan to keep themselves cool and he's just wandering the halls of this grand villa just knowing that his time has run out a lot of movies will give you a scene that's blocked with dozens of people like that but it'll just be a couple shots of them 
they won't be doing a whole lot, but this is like extended sequences where you could put your eyes on any little part of the frame. Just watch what that person in the background is doing there. Does this movie... So, <laughs> one of the weirdest trends of the year for me is that I've watched a bunch of movies, all of which are Italian, which feature a point when the characters join hands and they're kind of like doing a little... In the movie Midsummer, they call it Skin the Fool. I don't know if that has like a real name. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. They join hands. They're kind of like skipping around the room. That There's like one of those in this movie. It's just enormous. It's just like bodies, 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 <laughs> bodies of people. Like it's just you really, really, really get swept up. It's scale unimaginable. It's huge. Everything. There's a particular sequence where you're watching basically the Sicilian royal military, the royalists, are fighting these kind of insurrectionist mm-hmm. Italians that are trying to unify Italy, who we know are gonna yeah. win. They're in these brown coats. And you're just watching them fight through the streets of Sicily. And it's like, I mean, all of a sudden the movie shifts from this kind of political drama into being where it's just these like enormous battle set pieces. You get lost in it so easily. And I also really, really love the shot at the very end of the film where uh, Lancaster just walks into that alleyway and you see the little cat walking beside him. Oh, yeah. It really is just a beautiful portrait of this particular character who I think was born into nobility at the end of the authority of his position and his title. And so he was sort of born late into the overall period of that. And he sort of, at least from my perception, has this acceptance of that. He never really expected to be, you know, the prince his entire life. He expected this to kind of go the way that it is going. He seems to acknowledge the reality of what's happening to him. And, you know, through the character, through the Delon character, they're both sort of attracted to the same woman. But there's never a point when you think, oh yeah, Lancaster's gonna get the girl. Mm-hmm. There's always this sense that you know exactly where everything is going, and so does he. He kind of accepts it in a gracious way. And you're watching yeah. all the turbulence of the change while he kind of slowly, mournfully <laughs> kind of accepts it. And it's an interesting way to reflect on the aristocracy because I think it sort of points to the inevitability of them going away, the, the fact that they're an anachronism, mm-hmm. but also that there were things about it that served those people well. And I think Visconti gives you a very delicate portrait of aristocracy that is critical of it, but that also necessarily is romanticizing it. But more than just romanticizing it, really reflecting on what was good about it and why it lasted, why yeah. people supported it. Yeah. And it really digs into that dynamic of something that people don't need anymore, which has certainly been something everyone's been reflecting on in the past week and a half. R.I.P. Lizzie, I know that you just got reincarnated as Malibu Barbie. Uh, Peta's. <laughs> good luck with that, honey. There's a scene that I think is pretty critical to this mm-hmm. film that represents sort of the first democratic election of this region. And what ends up happening at the election is basically, you know, the prince shows up, he says, hey, this is who you guys are going to vote for. We're doing this unification thing. Everybody, let's go. As royalty, he sort of bows down and says, like, hey, this is the way that we're going. And everybody votes exactly the way that he says. And I think it just sort of reflects on this idea that, just like I was saying earlier, there's like a disconnect between what the state is doing, what the people want, or who the people are inside. Right. These people bow to their authority. They know who their prince is. They know who their lord is. 
just because you give them an election doesn't make them democratically minded, which I think is really important because one of the things that this movie is really about is the rise of the state of Italy, the rise of its military, and the ways that that would eventually build towards Italian fascism less than a century later. Visconti obviously lived through World War II and is here in the 60s reflecting basically every Italian movie in the 1960s and 1970s is about the years of lead or fascism in some way, whether intentionally or inadvertently. But here it is, I think, quite intentional. It's everyone reflecting going, how did we end up there? Right. How did things go so wrong? From our point of view, royalty going away and democracy stepping in is like, oh, that's positive. But we know that there was a road bump on the way to that becoming positive. That's one hell of a road bump. Yeah, (laughs) that's one way to put it, right? (laughs) So we watch Burt Lancaster go off into that sweet goodnight. He's out of time and a leopard cannot change its spots. And the Risorgimento continues even after the events of Il Gattopato. Arguably, it didn't end until 1918, when Italy finally reclaimed territory from the fallen Austro-Hungarian Empire after the end of World War I. However, some of those territories that were promised to them in the Treaty of London were not given back to Italy. These were specifically regions on the eastern side of the Adriatic Sea, and those areas became part of the new kingdom of Yugoslavia. So a popular phrase went up afterwards, mutilated victory, to describe the sort of raw deal that Italy had gotten at the end of World War I, which basically set stage for Mussolini and the fascists to rise to power. Much like a raw deal that another country up north got that eventually led to one of the most horrifying regimes in human history. In 1969, Visconti puts out The Dam. And I mean, it's probably one of the best films ever about Nazism, specifically. Maybe the best. There are many great, excellent masterpiece films that have Nazis in them, Mm -hmm. from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Army of Shadows, also 1969. Schindler's List, Shoah. Right. But there are very few that take you so far behind the curtain. That's really what I was taken with with this film. Very few movies have the audacity to be set from the perspective of Nazis. In all those movies we were naming before, the Nazis are bad guys. And they're not like particularly textured, interesting bad guys. They're like dudes in costumes who murder the shit out of people. Here, they are players in a great operatic production. The sort of inciting historical events of the film is the Reichstag is burning. Basically, Hitler has just been elected as the chancellor, and there's been an attack on government tried to burn it down and it's kind of symbolic of the fact that people were pushing back against the national socialists as they were rising to power but they weren't ready to back down they were here to stay for the duration of world war ii right and that's right where the film begins so we have this kind of sapient rise of nazism they've already been sworn into the government and the entire film is them consolidating their power and it's a drama about a bunch of different people trying to get their hands on some of that power. Specifically, this film is about the Essenbecks, a family of wealthy industrialists who have started doing business with the Nazi party, especially thinking ahead to wartime where they're going to be 
industrialist because they are the biggest steel producers in the country. And they are actually based off of a real family, the Krupp family, who were steel magnates from Essen. They were the premier weapons manufacturers for Germany in both world wars. During World War II, they had over 100,000 slaves toiling away producing guns and tanks and bombs and planes for them. After World War II, a family and their co-defendants were found guilty of crimes against humanity, put in prison, and they lost all of their money. Except in 1951, I believe, the Americans decided that getting Germany back on its economic footing was more important than giving Nazis what they deserve. So the family got everything back. And then they just continued to steamroll as one of the most powerful companies in Europe, just because Americans hated the Soviets more than they hated the Nazis. For reasons that are still unclear. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a quick parallel, because you mentioned Schindler's List. That's what Oscar Schindler was doing, too. That's like that's what his factory was about, too. That's what that movie's about. Yep. It goes a different way with him. But yeah, That movie's like... Actually, you know what? He was at least a semi-decent guy trying his best. Right. He didn't sexually assault a child and give them a venereal disease. Who's who's the actor that, that portrays Martin? Um, that actor... Burger guy? You know, it's Helmet Burger. Uh, Helmet Burger? Who was uh, Visconti's lover? Yeah, it shows. <laughs> <laughs> so the film, I... I, the inciting historical event is the Reichstag burning. This happens during a drag performance. Yep. This movie's like barrage of history and sexuality is just, I have to say, I knew from the moment I saw the poster, from the moment I saw the Criterion Blu-ray art, I was like, <laughs> this is going to be a movie that I like a lot. <laughs> because it just like, it's playing so deeply in the moral weeds with perversity with human psychology, with human emotion. And thus, it sort of gives you this drama that is like pitched up at a level that very, very few dramas can be pitched up at because it's at the, it's at the nexus of the fucking Nazi empire, right. basically. You're sitting around in the heart of evil. And there's not really, there are degrees of evil within it. I thought multiple times, though, of like Game of Thrones, of like the appealing parts of that show and the book series that it's based on. Because it's characters that are politicking mm -hmm. in a way that's deeply morally compromising. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most morally neutral characters here is played by Dirk Bogard, mm -hmm. uh, the English actor, who is also in Death in Venice. He's also in uh, Shouts to the Night Porter, the other Nazi criterion Italian movie. <laughs> <laughs> because his character is just kind of like trying to maintain. He's going to be like made head of the factory because he's engaged with the daughter of i think a dead ss officer or not the daughter the wife uh the widow of an ss officer yes who was the heir to this whole thing and so there's like all this kind of you know backdoor politicking who's going to take over the company who's going to run the show and he has like no particular interest in being a nazi or nazi ideology it's just that that's the way in they have shaken everything up enough for you to grab something that wasn't yours yesterday. That's kind of what the whole movie is. Everyone is scheming, plotting, backstabbing each other, and there are the different degrees of morality, even though everyone in this movie has sold their soul to Satan. But you have the Dirk Bogard character, and you even have Baby Charlotte Rampling in this for like 10 minutes. 
Ah, uh, she's so good. Yeah. And then she gets... Okay, so I take it back a little bit. She plays the wife of the only honorable character in this film. The guy that's sort of like, I will not be part of this if you guys play ball with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Bye. Yep. Once again, it's kind of interesting coming off the leopard too. There's the figure that is the head of the company. Does as much business with the chancellor as he feels like he has to. Which isn't like a good moral position, but ultimately he's murdered because people want to play ball more than he does. Yeah. And so there's, again, just kind of this reflection of like, you know, that guy wasn't perfect, but boy, the people that took over after him sucked. Out of the frying pan into the fire. There's a fella who's a brown shirt, part of what is called the SA. So you got the SS, those are the guys with the skulls on their hats. Mm-hmm. And then you got the SA, those are the guys in the brown shirts that you see in movies like uh, Cabaret. They are kind of, they're the people that secured Germany for the Nazis. They're going through the city streets, bullying the shit out of people, breaking windows, causing trouble. They're like a street gang mm-hmm. held together by German nationalism. And they're really, really, really important to helping Hitler secure the election, become chancellor, and to, you know, lead Germany. <laughs> and so when you see that character at the beginning of the movie, you're like, okay, well, this guy's going to be really successful. <laughs> He's going to be, you know, the riser, he's going to be sort of the guy that's around, sort of him, and then there's an SS officer, Aschenbach. Yep. I love the Aschenbach detail because Visconti uses that name in a couple different movies. Aschenbach is the character in Death in Venice. Mm-hmm. I believe Aschenbach is the name of the character in Ludwig as well. I believe so. Those films all made up the German trilogy, so it, it fits. But you get this group of people that you typically associate as like, oh, these are the true believers. And then you get this great set piece. It's sort of the ball of this movie is those guys all have like that big beer party, right? They all like get together and they're fucking drinking and singing their songs and partying and fucking <laughs> just a little bit. Big old gay orgy that turns to uh, a big old murder because it's the night of the long knives. Because ultimately what's going on there is that the German military, the generals, the people that run the show are like, yo, you're rowdy street gang shit. That has to stop. Like, we can't be part of that. And so what do they do? They're like, all right, the guys that just won us this election, kill them all. When you sell your soul to the devil, don't be surprised when you get dragged to hell. The SA wins Germany for Hitler. And as soon as they become expendable, fuck them. Like, <laughs> that's it. And that's what the movie is. It's like all these different schemes, all these different little plot threads get kind of plucked one by one. You're just like, snap, 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 snap. By like the inexorable rise of this regime. Mm-hmm. And at the very heart of all of this, and maybe the most evil, disgusting characters in the entire film are Martin and his mother, Sophie. Yeah. Just completely satanic, no human souls at all. Martin is the one that we mentioned earlier, dressed in drag as Marlena Dietrich, uh, performing a song from, I think it's from the Blue Angel. I'm not sure, but it's a song from one of her films. And then you see... Martin and his extremely possessive mother just try to outwit everyone into taking control of the company. So the mother's played by Ingrid Thulin, who's a mm-hmm. uh, Bergman collaborator, The Silence. <laughs> I hate to just go straight pop culture with it, but there's like the Game of Thrones where it's sort of like the incestuous, overprotective mother, like just fucked up <laughs> dynamic between the two of them. Incestuous that leads to um, child on parent rape. Yeah. At the very end. So Martin is pretty much the most evil movie character, kinda. <laughs> like, Darth Vader could never. He's sort of, to me, is like, 
a lot of the movies kind of about the structural evil of fascism. As I was kind of talking about Italian movies about fascism. There's sort of two, three ways to go about it. But one of the big ones is just to kind of talk about the structure, the politics, consolidation of power. How does, you know, we talked about this a lot with C, where it's sort of like, how do we enforce what the state wants within fascist government? Right. The other part of it is talking about kind of like the soul of fascism. Martin is the soul of fascism. He is just a demon. Like the first time you see him, he's doing the drag performance and he's like kind of pissing off his old man. And you're kind of like, at least if you're me, you're like, oh, okay, I like this guy. I like that he's pissing off his dad by dressing the dragon. It's great. This is awesome. And then the next thing he does is rapes one of his nieces. <laughs> like, boom, boom. And yeah. it, it's implied that this is basically like a really common thing. And then there's a, what what's going on there? He's like renting a room. He's like co-renting a room. There's like a little Jewish girl in the house next door. There's that whole subplot's just real, <laughs> real gnarly. Yeah, and then he assaults her and she kills herself. Uh, in case you were wondering, this movie was rated yeah. X. And it's all just kind of pointing at, I think, this idea of rot. Institutional rot. Moral rot. Emotional rot. Personal rot. Decay in the quest for power. And how none of the relationships matter. Family doesn't matter. Loyalty doesn't matter. Love doesn't matter. It's just how do you get a little bit more power on your plate? The Aschenbach character, who's like the SS guy, all he does the entire movie is like sneer at people. Because he knows. He's like, I know where yep. my bread's buttered. I'm on the right team. I'm going to win. You guys are going to lose. I don't know. He's watching everybody scurry around for some kind of control. Whereas he knows where things are truly headed. And I think with Martin and his mother, you just kind of get this depiction of you know maternal love in a movie it's such a potent symbol it's such a common symbol you see something like breastfeeding and there's a certain level of power to it like in the movie tom popo and then you take it in this film and the entire concept is to pervert it to take that most essential thing and then present it to you in a way that's like genuinely horrific the culmination of it is that martin understands I think he has, I think it's cholera, but whatever it is, he has the venereal disease that if he has sex with his mother, then she will have the venereal disease, which leads yep. to the point when the mother and then the Dirk Bogard character have like that wedding, which is probably like the most slack jawed scene I've ever watched because you're watching a few, basically, yeah. Yeah, of two because... living people who are about to not be. <laughs> right. Because as soon as they get married, he orders them to take cyanide and they kill themselves. Oh, and, and just just to look at Thulin, she's got like this white corpse paint on to mm -hmm. cover up, you know, her decaying body and everything like that. Those are the kind of the images that stick with me about this. They stick with me about Death in Venice, the other Dirk Bogard movie. That whole thing is yeah. just about his character rotting from the inside out. Yep. Everybody around him's contracting cholera and dying. And Visconti was there to see this fraud happen in real time and actively fought against it. So he knew better than anybody else what the heart of fascism looked like. All of his movies, to some extent, play with like, I wouldn't call it fatalism. You know, you watch a Fritz Lang movie and it's fatalism. It's sort of like the hand of fate moves you. He just wrote a lot of noirs, basically. This is like doom. This is the apocalypse bearing yeah. down on you. Even even the Nazi Empire, yeah. that falls apart eventually in 1945. He sort of knows that it's not built to last, too. Something that 
rises through chaos and violence cannot last forever. And that's like the only comfort that you can have watching this movie is knowing that 12 years later, it's all going to come crashing down. About as violently as it originally rose up. And as you can expect, based off of the extremely graphic content that we've described in this movie, did not get exactly the same reception that The Leopard did. The Leopard was basically universally praised, except in the US because it got that butchered release. But that was a critically praised and commercially successful hit. This one was kind of a hit in Europe. And in the US, it did gross a million dollars in 1969 money, which is insane to think about but only after a very, very censored version of the film was released. And it was also the first X-rated film to be aired on TV. Oh, wow. Very late night on CBS, except they had to remove so much content from it that people joked it should have been just called The Darned instead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think even now, The Damned is not quite held in the same esteem as Rocco and his brothers as The Leopard. And it's also not quite as popular. You know, yeah. the, the Criterion put out that Blu-ray like last year, so I don't know mm-hmm. that it's necessarily had the chance to kind of make it as far as those two movies did. They're kind yeah. of more universal praise and just kind of better support, more conventional uh, films. More friendly. Yeah, a little. <laughs> yeah, um, I've been trying to get people onto this movie for years because I think it's just one of the great masterpieces, period, and also the single best film we have to understanding the nature of fascism and how to defeat it whenever it arises. But um, you start telling people about what happens in it, and uh, they back away a little bit, and they look yeah. at you strangely. It, you know, it comes off when you say it like exploitation, and I think you could probably make the argument that it is like Nazi exploitation, which is, a yeah, that's a real genre, that's a real yeah. thing. But like The Leopard, like a lot of Visconti stuff, kind of like we were saying, there's just so much historically rooted perspective, personally, from Visconti, and just within the writing, that it comes across as like more intelligent and insightful. The other movie that I like basically exactly as much as this that I saw this year was The Conformist, Bertolucci's mm. The Conformist, which I think... And I think we, we even talked a little bit last year about investigation of a citizen above suspicion, Elio Petri. I yes. think what The Damned gives you that those two movies, I'm using air quotes, don't give you is the specificity of the history. 1933, we're in Berlin, the Reichstag's burning. Right. Versus in those movies, it's a little bit more like abstracted, kind of. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more Kafka-esque and absurd and comedic. This is like the regime. We're here. Right. And that's what Visconti gives you with his kind of excessive, pale, huge productions is the sense of place and time. When the big party is happening in The Leopard, you feel like you're at the Sicilian Ball. And when the big party of the SA officers is happening, you feel like you're in Germany celebrating, you know, the fatherland. It's like being sucked into the pages of a history textbook in the best way you can imagine. Yeah, right, written by like a romance novelist. Yes. So that you're just like getting so like caught up in the drama. <laughs> There's so much like intelligent and suggestive detail too that I just sort of feel like you could watch both of these movies a number of times and just kind of come away with these really poignant reflections on whatever given topic, whatever theme they happen to be talking about at the moment. And they sort of would reward really studious watching but 
they're also extremely easy to just kind of get caught up in for the sensory experience of them as well. And movies that do both of those things, I think, just kind of classic status. Yeah, just operating on a higher level than most people could dream of ever pulling off. Because without that, you'd lose so much of what makes these movies special. All the color, all the extravagance. The music, the sound, just... A big motif in The Damned is actually that it uses the tricolors, green, white, and red. Mm-hmm. A lot of like kind of sickly greens, a lot of deep Nazi red. But you're like you're looking at the Italian flag yeah. that, in almost every image of the film. Yeah, like sure it's set in Germany, but we all know that really it's a giant metaphor for what happened in his home country. And I think that speaks a little bit to the universality of it. The fact that, you know, yeah. he's talking from nineteen sixty three and nineteen sixty nine and we're here in twenty twenty two and there's still reason to reflect on these themes and ideas the cyclical nature of everything as you said just had uh, a, a, a king anointed some fucking mad magazine looking dude big sausage fingers watch spencer yes watch spencer fuck you paddington bear <laughs> paddington is a class traitor shame on him moves to england from peru and immediately forgets who he is watch the mike lee movie or something yeah get in touch with your roots i've really enjoyed watch the sconti stuff this year he's been one of my favorite discoveries i think he's like put the most movies on my list of favorite first time watches for the year it's like him it's i shit you not it's him antonioni and Fellini (laughs) are the three viva italia (laughs) and pal and pressburger I will give the English back a little bit of credit for those guys. Yeah. All right. They made one right choice. One good thing. My thing with Visconti at the end of the day is even if you're apprehensive about trying out his filmography and, you know, watching some of his films, I would very strongly recommend that you would at least give him a chance. You know, pick the one that sounds the most interesting to you based off your interest in history and politics and geography, whatever. And just prepare to dive in and just take everything in, absorb it all. If you need to, like, have your phone out and, you know, dig on Wikipedia to find out what's going on, absolutely do that. You know, the film encourages you to really, his films really encourage you to play in the sandbox of history and to learn from it. For me, the most recent one that I watched, Rocco and His Brothers, seems like such a universally great starting point, particularly for an American audience, because it clearly had such an influence on Coppola. Mm-hmm. Had such an influence on Scorsese. Oh, yeah. Like, you could just see that in their kind of Italian American epics. And I think that that's like a three hour movie that you feel like it could go on for another two more hours because it's just such a rich drama. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a great starting point for just about anybody. And it's also like right in the middle of realist sensibilities and like being the god of melodrama yeah because it looks like in the overlist uh film but its story and its emotions are on the scale of a operatic epic low-key great sports movie too yeah you know it's not it's not exactly raging bull but the boxing scenes are pretty damn good yeah absolutely i'm looking forward to watching more of his stuff too i think the i've got two la terra trema which is an early film early realist film and then uh bellissima which i think early 50s 51 something like that yeah so i'm interested in kind of digging even deeper into Visconti and seeing what else is there because i'm 
sure that even stuff that's like less celebrated than the leopard there's yeah. a lot to be explored there oh yeah like um i'd have to see a couple of his earlier works but i just watched um recently for the first time uh, ludwig a four hour like epic just about one of the kings of Bavaria who was a closeted homosexual and completely lost his mind and just started building fairy tale palaces that became inspiration for Walt Disney. <laughs> wow. Yeah. One of them was the inspiration for the castle in Sleeping Beauty. That's also Helmut Berger, right? The actor that plays yeah. Martin. Mm-hmm. But it's just such a gigantic, enormous, uh, deeply informative text about the decay and rot of royalty and nobility, not in as a sick and perverted way as um, the damned is. This is more about, you know, what happens when the people at the top realize that they don't have anything to make them human and they try to find some kind of connection. So if you haven't seen that, I would highly recommend setting aside four hours for it. Probably the biggest scaring point with anybody with these movies is just that they're like long and there's a lot of history. Oh, yeah. They can sound like a chore, but I've seen seven of them now. They're all long. <laughs> and they, you just, you really sink your teeth into them. They really kind of wrap themselves around you. And you just kind of like, when I was watching Rocco and his brothers, which is like three hours long, I was just kind of like chilling out. Just like, yeah, okay, I'm just here with these guys. This is great. <laughs> the drama, the pitched up nature of the damned. You know, the damned is a movie that kind of like leaves you so, what's going to happen? Oh, no. Right. But I think aside a little bit of time you put a one on for 10 minutes 20 minutes and you're just going to be absorbed into what's yeah. going on it can be so easy to just like blast through like you know an imdb top 250 or whatever and just go oh, okay 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 and then finally you find that one movie that really speaks to you you know you and i are of a sort where visconti particularly for different reasons and for some of the same reasons yeah. really speaks to each of us but i think that what Throughout his entire body of work, there's just so much great material, so many great ideas, performances, images that are worth exploring. Adventures out there. So That's if right. you've been listening to us, uh, go check some of his stuff out. I'm, I think some of them are even available on YouTube. I was re-watching some stuff from The Damned and The Leopard before this, and the first thing that popped up for both movies, there it was, the entire film in one video. Well, thank you, Cole. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm always happy to talk about one of my all-time favorites. I think we'll get a chance to talk about another one of those soon, who we've teased a few times, because Avatar is coming back to theaters this month. Very soon. Very exciting. So yeah, I look forward to talking to you about that, and, uh, you know, talking about more movies down the road. Bye, everybody! Frühling kommt der Sperlingbeet, duft aus Blütenkelchen. Bin in einen Mann verliebt, und weiß nicht in welchen. Ob er Geld hat, ist mir gleich, denn mich macht die Liebe reich. Kinder, heute Abend, da suche ich mir was aus. Einen Mann, einen richtigen Mann. Kinder, die Jungs, ich mal schon zum Hals heraus. Einen Mann, einen richtigen Mann.